So uh, a few years ago, I read the famous early autobiography of Frederick Douglass, the escaped slave, abolitionist, and statesman. And in the middle of it, he tells of the tragedy, many tragedies, but the tragedy of his grandmother's death. Uh, after a lifetime of bondage and servitude to her masters, when she was too old to be of any use to them, they put her out to pasture. Uh, not, even, not even that. They, they sent her callously out to die alone in, in a little shack apart from her family because she would have been a distraction to them. And after he closes this section, he asks the question, will not a righteous God visit for these things? The thing is, Douglas could have asked that question throughout the entire narrative of, of inhumanity and cruelty, right? The beatings, the rapes, the murders, the calculated theft of time and family and dignity. Since I've read his story and more like it, that question has been reverberating in my mind. And that's the question that is posed to us in the psalm, and the psalms we're really going to wrestle with this morning is the question of justice. Will not a righteous God visit for these things? In this series at Christ Presbyterian over the, over the summer, you've been engaging with the Psalms and looking at the book of the Psalms, and I think what you've seen is the Psalms are many things, right? The Psalms are the prayer book of the Christian church. They teach us to pray to God. They're also rich theological texts that teach us about God, how to engage with Him, who He is, and really how to encounter Him in the world in the middle of life's greatest struggles. And in that sense, it shines a light on some of the deepest and greatest questions and the way Jesus answers them. And this morning, our text takes us squarely into one of the most pressing issues of our day, which is the question and really the cry for justice. How does Christianity begin to make sense out of the cry for justice, the longing in our hearts? And not only make sense of it, but actually bring us into line with it, with justice. Our hearts, how does he line up our hearts and our actions? So what I want to do uh, this morning is I want to look at four things. Um, not, sorry, not three, four. Uh, the way this psalm begins to help us articulate a cry, uh, uh, make sense of our cry for justice, the way it holds up a mirror to our own injustice, the way it offers us an escape from injustice, and the way it forms an entryway into justice. And my hope is this morning, as we look at the questions raised by God's word, we'll be confronted not just with serious philosophical questions, but, but existential ones that cut to the, to the hearts of our own souls and expose our deep need for a just God. But Kyle said there's like only two hours, right? So we got to Get, go. I, use that, I use that joke every time. I, I love it. Never going to get old. Um, but first, the cry for justice. Making sense of the cry. The first point I want to talk about is sort of uh, what makes sense of our cry for justice. And the psalmist here just engages very quickly. The psalmist here is David. And in the first couple of verses, he's crying out to God again, initially for relief of a particular injustice, right? Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. We don't know much about the details of the story, right? The superscription says uh, it's about a, Benjamin, a Benjaminite Cush who had uh, apparently slandered him and betrayed him and pursued him. And the language initially is of, of essentially like a vicious bestial attack of the sort that provokes anxiety and fear and even panic. And, and if anyways, just dealt with gossip or, or, or false uh, rumors or slanders, you know that anxiety that kind of penetrates your soul. And it's at that point that David articulates this cry for personal vindication. 
But David doesn't just stay personal, right? Verses 7 to 8, his complaint and plea go out, and they go cosmic, right? David often speaks personally, but he often also speaks in the person of who he is as the anointed one, either the one who is to be king or the one who is king. And so he cries out for public justice, right? Awake, my God, decree justice. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. This is a common image in the Psalms. The Psalms declare that God is the king who judges. Psalm 94 puts the cry for public justice more starkly. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. This is the cry. How long will the unjust proper, how long, prosper? How long will the wicked get away with it? Right? At the heart of this cry is the idea that there is a match or ought to be a match between action and consequence. Right? A harmonious, equitable reality where good is rewarded and wrong is punished and lies are answered with truth. That is what we want deep down. And this is not just an old plea. I was reading in the Atlantic uh, a few years ago. Uh, there was an author who, who was writing about the college entrance exam scandal, uh, college entrance scandal where uh, rich parents were basically buying their kids into colleges. And, um, and he was t- writing about that this was going to create, a, if nothing happened, right, uh, to, these, to these elites, there was going to be a, a crisis of institutional authority as once again, whether it's the, the banking crisis or whatever, once again, people were going to get away with it. And what, what needed to happen, the, the reason this article stuck out was he said what needed to happen was a little Old Testament justice. It was a couple of years ago. The irony was this was um, uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and this is ironic for Chicago readers given that his own, uh, his own um, administration had some justice issues when it came to policing. Uh, and, and other um, various uh, issues. And I'm not going to adjudicate that here. My point is to show that this cry is not just old, it's, it's current, right? We had the Me Too movement. What was that? Struggle for justice. We had uh, Black Lives Matters protests. We had priest and pastoral scandals. We had uh, so many. It doesn't even matter where you are on a lot of the way those things went or went down. At the heart of the things that are roiling our nation, is a cry for, for justice. I think of these deep insecurities in our public life, and there is this sense that justice will not be done no matter how we vote, how we march, how we raise our kids. The violent will somehow keep grinding the weak into the dust, and that leaves us unsettled. The thing we have to ask ourselves is this, what makes sense of this instinct in our bones? right? Metaphysically, philosophically, and this is where unfortunately going to put on my philosopher hat for a moment, uh, everybody has to make sense of this, both believers and non-believers, not, or not just believers and non-believers, but, but uh, Christians and non-Christians, because everybody believes in something, right? Everybody has a big story they tell themselves about the way the world works cosmically. And I'll say this, the two major options that, uh, that present themselves either against the monotheisms, be it secular atheism or some sort of pantheism, I don't think they can actually, I don't think they can actually pull it off. Right? If you look through the way uh, 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 an atheism, and I'm not saying, sorry, I'm not saying atheists or pantheists can't be good, just people in practice. What I'm saying is 
metaphysically, how does the system account for this? If you look at secular atheism, how does it make sense of our, our cry for justice? You can either say that moral obligation arises from the individual, right? Uh, the individual, myself, is the authority for, for my sense of right and wrong, but at that point you ask, who gives you the authority to determine right or wrong, right? And what if your sense of justice bumps up, bumps up against your neighbors? Who adjudicates between those? Is there a standard above them? Okay, so, so maybe the individual isn't enough, isn't sufficient to locate that sense of justice. Well, what about community? What about society, right? And what if morality is socially constructive and basically relative from society to society? That's initially plausible, if you study various cultures and societies, you see that there are different customs and traditions and ethics, and, and especially if you're kind of sensitive to the question of colonialism, you know that oftentimes European nations have, have said, well, our, our culture is good and right, and so we're gonna impose that on other cultures and so on and so forth, and so you might wanna say, no, it's relative society to society, but at that point, you, you have a couple of problems, right? The first is that it's basically a different version of the first answer, right? Societies are in many ways just collections of individuals. What gives the collective more authority than the individual, right? For thousands of years, societies thought that slavery was perfectly equitable. What makes it go uh, from inequitable in one society to equitable in another, right? Is it the geography line? Is it the boundary makes it right in one country and wrong in another? Or what about, what about time, right? Does, it go from, does slavery go from being wrong on Monday or right on Monday, to wrong on Tuesday because enough people change their minds about it? Or does there have to be some standard that transcends societies, which I think we know deep down there does, right? There are things that happen across all societies that we know are wrong. Like napalming babies is wrong. Rape is wrong. Murder is wrong across societies and times and cultures. So morality and our moral sense cannot just be culturally relative. Finally, what about nature? Perhaps evolution, natural selection, or the survival of the fittest de determines right or wrong, telling us what behaviors are more adaptively advantageous. And that seems like a good explanation for where maybe a moral instinct arises, but it doesn't tell us why we have to obey it. Right? It may explain why I have a sense that things are right or wrong, but it doesn't tell me no, you have to obey that urge any more than I have to obey the urge to like wipe sweat or scratch an itch or something like that. It just is what it is because it keeps us alive. Any order to it is metaphysically and morally accidental and unintended, in which case it doesn't carry force, right? Another way of putting it is that this confuses things like gravity and biology with morality. It looks at what is and sees and ought which makes no sense if what is there is just there by accident. Very briefly, so that's, that's secular atheism. Very briefly, pantheism. Pantheism, which is kind of a, it's a, it's kind of a more I don't know, existentially sane option. Like, the world, is, the world is God. There's more to the world than just matter and motion. There's something deep within us that longs and, 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 and is humming with the divine. The problem with that is if God is identified with the universe, and he's in all things, which, which sounds nice when the, when, the, when the sun is setting on the beach, um, gets really dark when you start to recognize like how at that point do you start to determine which parts of reality are good or bad, right? When you press into it, 
you don't have much purchase to criticize what's going on in certain sectors of the universe because those dark parts, the crimes, the injustices, are just another side of the divine, the shadow side perhaps, which is why these metaphysical systems tend to start talking about cycles of birth and rebirth and death and destruction and creation. And so you can't say, no, that right there absolutely should not be there. In fact, this is why the monotheisms, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, comparatively, Christianity and the view of the psalm begins to make sense out of what's going on in our heart because it tells us there's one God who made the world. He's not identified with the world. He transcends the world, which means he can judge the world. He is the just one, the righteous one, the creator, the Lord. And you and I are image bearers who have been made in his image, which is why we have something in our bones that tells us that something's off. And that there's somebody above the world that we can appeal to and say something is wrong here. Who's capable of judging these things. See, this is the thing. Ironically enough, the only thing that makes sense of our hearts cry for justice is the kind of God that modern people have constantly told us they don't want. A God of judgment and wrath. A God who rewards good and punishes evil. That's what actually starts to answer what's going on in our hearts. Here's where things get complicated, though. You're like, How was that? that wasn't the complicated part. No, uh, existentially complicated, right? Um, that's not the only thing going on in our hearts. Look at verse 3. Uh, oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. In this context, this is a declaration of innocence, of relative righteousness. David says, look, the thing I'm being accused of, I didn't do it. I don't deserve this betrayal. And in this case, David is probably right. He probably doesn't deserve this betrayal. He didn't do the thing he's accused of. And there will be things that happen like that. And it is right to call for justice in those moments. But this does raise the deeper question, am I truly, fully, in the deepest, most cosmic sense, innocent? Right? In the back of our minds, the thought that a good, righteous God will visit for these things isn't entirely good news to us. Another psalm, Psalm 130, verse 3, he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? Because we can turn on the news and it, it may fill us with righteous anger and injustice, but it also, I think for many of us, engulfs us with a sense of the thousand different ways we're complicit in injustice. Right? We may not be the one telling the racist jokes, but we maybe don't say anything when we hear them. We may not traffic in sex workers, but we may, in those dark moments, turn on uh, uh, pornography that does, right? aside from its essentially degrading character. You, you may not actively steal from your neighbors, but maybe we keep and spend more money on ourselves than we know that we ought to that could be better spent on others. We are enmeshed, as the Book of Common Prayer says it, in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And actually, I have, I, have a, I have a sense that this nagging sense of culpability is an unspoken motivator for so much of our frantic and angry political engagement as a nation. Rene Girard, this literary critic, um, social critic, focused on the issue of violence and scapegoating. He has this quote uh, in one of his books, the victims most interesting to us are always those who allow us to condemn our neighbors and our neighbors do the same. They always think first about the victims for whom they hold us responsible. 
Many of us are on a quest. It's a quest we might not recognize or realize or admit, to, but it's a quest to justify or atone for our unrighteousness. So what we do is we go on a hunt. We, we identify the victims of our neighbors or spot their sins or hypocrisies, however subtle to the untrained eye. And if we can do that, we must not be guilty of them ourselves, right? Because we're pointing them out. We're not as bad. And so we work for the good, not just because it's right, but because we need to prove to ourselves and the watching world that we aren't complicit. Our very sense of self is on the line. Here's the thing. If you play prosecutor long enough, you're never in the defendant's seat, is the idea, existentially. And ironically enough, this, this can actually turn into unjust practices of scapegoating and oppression in reverse. Justice turns into an attempt to justify, turns into a mob, turns into tyranny. The French Revolution turns into the terror. And this isn't just politics. This is the everyday stuff of blame shifting and nitpicking and counter accusations and arguments with your kids, your spouse. If she did something first, then what I did wasn't that bad. She made me. And if we're honest, we have a sense that we would not, if we had to deal with this and actually had to be held to account, we would not do that well if we stood before the Lord. We are unrighteous and cannot be justified in the court of the God who, in verse 9, it says, tests the minds and hearts of all, even by our own moral standards. If God were to use only those to judge us, we would stand condemned. So what do you do? What, what do we do? We're caught between a rock and a hard place because we want a God who judges, and we're also kind of scared of him. We're not sure we'd come out clean on this. The Apostle Paul gives us an answer in the letter to the, book of Rome, letter to the church in Rome, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. And I, I will say I'm a little nervous talking about Paul in front of Kyle right there. Uh, but, but he says in chapter 3, verse 21 to 26, he says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. The redemption that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, Paul says what we all know. We all stand under God's judgment, Jew and Gentile. We've all violated his law in a thousand ways, large and small. Not just hating our neighbors, but also actually hating God himself by robbing him of the praise we owe him, rejecting him and worshiping other gods. But now he says there is a justice that is available to us, testified to in the law and the prophets. He's, he's talking about this plan to bring justice into the world, going all the way back to the calling of Abraham and turning Abraham into a great nation, Israel, and then setting them free from slavery and promising them a, a Messiah. And, and all of this would come out in one person, one man, who would set the world straight, Jesus. And Jesus is God's justice plan. Jesus is the justice of God on our behalf. See, Jesus comes and he lives the perfectly righteous, perfectly just life, honoring God and loving neighbor, pursuing justice for the poor, the outcast that we should have. 
And as this perfect Messiah, this righteous anointed one, as a representative, he actually goes in our place to the cross and dies there as a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement, one who satisfies the requirement. What that means is he takes responsibility for our guilt and our sin. And, and, and like it says in the Psalms, you have that picture of the wicked devising and digging a pit that, that others are to fall into, but they fall into themselves. We devised a pit. And Jesus, in his mercy and compassion, and as God's justice, throws himself in it on our behalf so that we might not. This is the execution of God's justice on all the sin he had overlooked in the past. In the death of his son, Paul says elsewhere that he condemned sin in the flesh. And this is why God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are united with him. And his obedience and his justice become yours, and your injustice becomes his on that cross. And so God has dealt with sin, punished it as it deserves, and yet can show mercy and, just, and, and, and injustice to the one who repents. Right? This is why it says, verse 12, judgment will come if a man does not repent, but if we do repent, the judgment of Jesus on the cross counts for us, and his obedience becomes ours. And the Bible calls that justification. There is, there is this righteous declaration upon Jesus that he is the righteous one. And if you're united with him, that declaration becomes yours. And this is at the heart of the good news of Jesus. We don't actually trust our own strength. We don't actually trust our own righteousness to be a shield against that judgment. We trust in Jesus. Jesus is our shield. Jesus is our justice which is why we can turn to him, which is why this is all by grace. This is not your own works. This is not anything you've pulled off. This is despite everything you've pulled off. Besides the faith that we have in him. And this is how we escape from injustice. Now, the thing is, if the Bible stopped there, that would be good news, but we would have lingering questions, right? Christianity and the gospel are not just a philosophical understanding of the world. They are actually a just way of living in the world. The cross of Jesus doesn't just deliver us from judgment, but it turns us into just people. How does the gospel lead to that? Three ways, very quickly. First, most obviously repentance, right? Some of you know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a liar and a cheater who stole from his countrymen, but when he encountered Jesus, Jesus called him uh, to himself, and Zacchaeus right then and there said, hey, if, it, if I've cheated anybody, if I've robbed from anybody, I'll, I'll pay it back, and I'm going to give extra, half of everything I, got, I, I own to the poor, right? Now, the thing is, Zacchaeus wasn't called because he did that act of righteousness. He was made righteous by Jesus by faith in the moment. He called him by faith, and after he placed his faith in Jesus, he turns and repents and begins to act righteously. And that's the question for some of us today. What does it mean for us to repent and turn and act righteously because we've been made righteous in Christ? What are our financial dealings like? Right? What are our, what are our dealings at home? How, how are, we, are we just in our family relations? Do, or we, do we bully and, and emotionally manipulate people? Are we just in our sexual relationships? Most of us don't think about sexual relationships as an issue of justice, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6 that in this matter, Paul says, that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, for the Lord will punish those who commit such sins. Are we just with each other in these, in these areas? And if not, this is a call to repent. 
The second way that, that, that this begins to make us just is imitation, right? What do you turn to? You turn to imitating Jesus. First John 2 says, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus walked in justice and kindness. He preached uh, good news to the captives and the poor in, in, in Luke 4 from Isaiah, right? And some of you have already begun to do this, actually thinking right now about uh, that notice in your bulletin. Y'all are doing good work proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus in, in Alameda Park, right? feeding the poor, beginning to practice justice in your businesses, beginning to practice justice at home, right? That is to walk in the way of the just one. Which actually brings me to a third point, which I'd cut earlier. Um, the other one is this. We live, in, we live in a weirdly, we live in a punitive, vengeful culture. And I think one of the things that the justice of Jesus will actually make us do, as you pursue justice in the world, everybody wants to be just, everybody wants to post, everybody wants to be on the side of social righteousness. The thing I think will actually mark the justice of Christians is that if you know that you are just because of the justice of Jesus and not through your own attainment of righteousness, you can actually do that without being vicious to those who fail. You can actually begin to show grace to the fallen. You can actually begin to show forgiveness and mercy and actually have an, a, a, a repentance and exit, exit strategy for the fallen in a culture that, that will not forgive even the slightest offense. Christians can seek justice without, without turning into you know, vengeful revolutionaries. Which brings me to the last point. The gospel reminds us and teaches us that ultimately our hope and justice belongs to God. We can do a lot of things, but the reality is at the end of the day, it's, it's discouraging when you look at all the things that are left to be done. But for the Christian, the hope for justice in the world is not that my energies and my efforts will ever bring it about. Our, as Christians, we have hope. We know there is a God who will one day judge the world in righteousness and that he has already proved this in the cross. And so we can rest in God even as we work towards an imperfect justice in this life, there is a sure and solid hope. Our hearts cry, we'll be answered in Jesus. And this is why we can say with the psalmist, I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That will, that will be what we praise him for, for his righteousness. So go ahead and bow your heads and pray with me now. Holy Father, you are the righteous king, you are the judge, and thank God in Jesus Christ, you are also the justifier. We ask you that today as we praise your name for both things, uh, that we would praise in joy, praise in hope, and praise in the deep rest of knowing that a righteousness is given us in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.